Good evening, everybody. Uh, I hope you're having a... Uh, we've made it through half of the week. And, man, it's been windy today. Um, but I must say, I am extremely grateful. I mean, I'm able to sit here with short sleeves. So that is awesome. <laughs> um, before we start the lesson, um, can you just let me know in the comments if the the sound is coming through uh, nicely uh, you know i don't care as much for the visuals and and um it's the sound that i'm really uh, concerned about because it needs to be clear and it also needs to be clear in the recording so i'll just wait a few seconds to check youtube if anybody can let me know that'll be that'll be great uh, let's see here hmm so I honestly hope that you're not just staring at my with no audio. Uh, that'll be awesome. Uh, all right. I think I'll start. Um, and I'll just check WhatsApp every now and again to see if anybody lets me know. So if you have my number, please let me know. But uh, tonight we're starting off in Philippians chapter 2. So you can open up your Bibles in Philippians chapter 2. And before we start there, we will just bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you so much for being with us today. Lord, thank you that you are the one that sustains us, Lord, throughout every difficulty in our lives, Lord. Um, Lord, thank you so much that we can study these things in your word, Lord, the, the things that we will look at tonight. Lord, um, when I think about you um, coming in the flesh, Lord, that is so wonderful to know that you did that because you love us. And Lord, that you, that you died on the cross for us so that we can be saved. Lord, we thank you that we can know that you live today. We thank you, Lord, that the, the gospel message is just so simple. Father, we ask that you will please help us with our studies here in Philippians. And, and um, will, you, will you please speak to us in our hearts throughout all of this? And will you teach us and, and show us what we need to know, what we need to change in our lives, in our hearts, and how we can help other people with the knowledge, with the knowledge uh, that we gain? Lord, we praise your name. Amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 2. Now, if I were to give a short summary or title for this chapter, it would be Unity Described and Exemplified. Unity Described and Exemplified. Now, Paul is going to start off this chapter by, by calling the Philippian church to unity. And he actually already introduced this thought in uh, chapter 1 and verse 27. If you would look with me. Chapter 1 and 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul is going to expand on this and and. On, on what it takes to actually achieve unity within the local church. Now, an interesting thing about this issue of unity is that Paul actually had to address it in almost every one of his letters that he sent to churches. 
We went through this a few weeks ago in Romans class where we read in Romans 15 verse 5 to 7. I'll just read it for you. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. That, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. To the Corinthians, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, we simply don't have time to look at every single occurrence of this, but let me just give you a few verses or cross-references that you can go check out on your own time. Now, just keep in mind that not all these verses that I'm going to give you contain words like like-minded or unity or so on, but all of them mention the principles of unity within the body of Christ. So the first one that I'm going to give you is 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. And then Galatians chapter 5 and verse 26. And Galatians 6 verse 2 to 3. Ephesians 4 verse 1 to 6. Colossians 3 verse 12 to 15. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9 to 10. And 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. Now when you go and look at those references... Uh, you would see that many of them speak about us having true, unselfish, brotherly love toward another. And that is because that is an extremely important ingredient to unity within the local church. If everyone would just put the needs of others before his own, then true unity would not be that hard to achieve. But you see, while we live in this flesh we still have this sinful nature within ourselves. And because of that, all of us will unfortunately succumb to selfishness from time to time. We like to elevate our own personal preferences or our own opinions at the expense of other people. To, to selfishly insist on your own preferences within the church is actually sinful because it causes division. And something like that can tear a church apart. And it's sad to say that it has done so many times in the past. Now, all of those references that I, that I gave you just now should indicate to you that disunity is a very definite threat within the local church. And it is up to us to pray and to fight for that unity. Now, it would seem as if there were members in the church at Philippi who had some sort of personal conflict between them, and it must have been a big deal, since Paul publicly calls them out on it in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. So just page there, just on the next page, Philippians 4 and verse 2, he says, I beseech Judas and beseech Suntike that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, you can imagine why this was a big deal. You see, if you have two members that have some sort of issue between them, and they start to walk around and start to gossip about each other, you will necessarily start to have factions forming behind each one of them. Because some people will agree with the one's case, and other people will agree with the other one's case. And just like that, 
you have disunity within the church, and it threatens to tear the, the church apart. Now, um, let me just give you a, a quick outline for um, Philippians chapter 2. Now, first off, in Philippians 2 and verse 1 to 4, Paul is going to call, call the unity to church, uh, oh, oh, sorry, call the church to unity. Verse 5 to 8, he gives us Christ's example of humility. Verse 9 to 11, we have Christ's exaltation. Verse 12 to 18, um, Paul is calling the Philippians to be lights in this world, you know, to, to let our light shine in this world. Verse 19 to 24, he is sending and he's commending Timothy to them. And verse 25 to 30, we will see that he, he will first send Epaphroditus to them. And he's also praising him for the service that he's done and, and what he's gone through. And he's sending him back to the Philippians. Now, uh, with that, let's dive into verse 1. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, here in verse 1, Paul is, going, uh, Paul is giving us four motivators for unity. First, he mentions, if there be any consolation in Christ. Now, consolation is a synonym for comfort, or for exhortation, or encouragement. So, it speaks of somebody coming in alongside somebody else and comforting them or encouraging them or exhorting them. Now, when Jesus gave the promise of the Holy Spirit uh, that will be sent, he said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Now, if you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the comforter living inside of you. Now, it, he is the one that comes in alongside believers to help them and to comfort them. And folks, that, that is a wonderful gift uh, that the Lord has given us. And so this amazing fact should cause every believer to be grateful and to therefore respond by pursuing unity and, and love with his fellow believers. Now, secondly, Paul says, if any comfort of love. That's the second motivator, you know, that the, the Lord has proven his love toward us in that he graciously saves those who put their faith and trust in him. And what amazing love that is, folks. You know, every now and again, I, I think about this and I, I think about, you know, where I was before I got saved and the things I do, the things going on inside of my heart and mind and all of that. And I, I just think about how undeserving I am of this salvation that I received so freely. But folks, that is why it is called the grace of God, isn't it? None of us deserve it, but he did it anyway, because he loves us. And then we have verses like Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, that says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So God keeps on shedding his love on us, and our answer to that should be to, well, to love our fellow believers. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11, John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 
And it is this love that will promote unity within the local church. Now, the third motivator that Paul mentions here is he says, if any fellowship of the Spirit. Now, the fellowship of the Spirit is very intimate. You know, so much so that our bodies are actually called the, the temple of the Holy Ghost. And that's 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. It is the Holy Spirit that baptizes every believer into Christ and, and thereby adding you as a member into the body of Christ. And it is because we all have fellowship with the Spirit that the unity of the local church should be preserved. Now, the fourth motivator for unity, he says, if any bowels and mercies. Now, we looked at bowels last time in, uh, in Philippians 1 and verse 8. Uh, but bowels is a metaphorical term for the emotions of a person. Now, this motivator speaks of that very deep affection and the mercies that God extends to every believer, which in the end should result in unity between the believers because they have all received this. And so Paul is saying that all of these things, the consolation in Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, and the bowels and mercies should motivate believers to strive towards unity within the church. Now, I would say that it all boils down to gratitude towards the Lord for everything that He has done for us and for everything that He provides us as believers. And so Paul says in verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Sorry, I'm just checking if I am still online. Thank you, Brother Mike, you're still with me. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Now, here in verse 2, Paul gives us four traits or four characteristics of unity. First off, he says that they should be like-minded. Now, this means that the believers should all actively strive towards genuine agreement amongst themselves. They must think the same thing. Now, we can all disagree on some points that are not essential, like how often we should partake of the Lord's Supper, or if the men in the pulpit should, should wear ties, you know, and as you can see, uh, you know where I fall in that, <laughs> or whatever else falls into the realm of personal preference. But it, when it comes to the essentials of the faith and the word of God, folks, we can have no compromise there. If we can all agree that the word of God is the final authority in all matters, well, then we can actually have unity within the church. Now, the second trait that he mentions here is he says, having the same love. So that's the second characteristic of unity. And, and that is to love others equally, having the same love. You know, regardless of who they are or what benefits they can bring you uh, to your life or to your business or whatever. Now, I must say that there is a big difference between loving everybody equally and liking everybody equally. You know, the Bible never tells us to like everybody equally and thank God for that. Right? Because you won't like everybody equally. Because there are just so many uh, uh, personal differences between us. You know, some people like rugby, and some people like hunting, some people like knitting, and others like to climb mountains or whatever. But my point is that you won't have the same interests as everybody. So you might not like everybody equally. And you know what? That is fine. That is fine. Some people's personalities are just 
clashing so much that they can't like each other. And that is okay. But what we are called to, however, is to love one another equally. Now, that's different. You know, this is the kind of love that engages your will. And if you don't like the person, of course, your will is more engaged. <laughs> but it's a choice that you make to actively seek out the well-being of others. And that is the reason why it can actually be commanded by Scripture. It's because it is an act of the will. Now, the third trait that is listed here, uh, let me just find it here, is he says we should be of being of one accord. Now, to be of one accord means to do something together. To agree about what should be done and therefore to, um, to have the same desires and the, the same ambitions as, as the others. Now this speak of, speaks of living in selfless harmony with other believers. As Paul will continue to explain in the next few verses, folks, there is no place for selfish pride if we are to be of one accord. And when everybody does not understand everything um, in the same way, then we should not allow our minor differences to disrupt our unity as a church. Now, notice that I said minor differences shouldn't disrupt our unity. Um, you know, as long as we all agree to march in the direction that the Word of God points us, well, then we can be unified. And we should not allow our petty differences to break up our unity. And the fourth trait that Paul mentions here is he sh says that we should be of one mind. Of one mind. Now, um, we should be thinking the same thing. That is, in this context, to be intent on a singular purpose. And I actually think that it follows nicely after the first three uh, traits or characteristics that he mentioned. We should all come together and we should agree on what the fundamentals are that we believe and, and what we stand for and what we are trying to achieve. And we should all be working together to that same purpose. Verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. You know, every time I read that word other, I think about that sermon that uh, Brother Mike preached one, one time, you know, he just said, others, others, I can't say it that way, but you know what I mean. But, <laughs> but alright, this word strife carries with it this idea of building yourself up while tearing somebody else down. It, it describes someone who wants to advance himself by using things like factory or false ac accusations, deceit, and anything else that would help him to achieve his goal. In Galatians 5 verse 20, um, strife is actually described as a work of the flesh. And folks, it's a sure way to damage the unity within a church. And it goes hand in hand with, with vainglory that Paul mentions here. Now, you can actually get the meaning of vainglory if you just listen to the word. It is vainglory. <laughs> You know, one of the definitions that I found for vainglory is it is excessive pride in oneself or one's own achievements. So basically thinking too highly of yourself. You know, somebody that suffers from a bad case of vainglory always thinks that he is right. And he expects everyone else to agree with him. Because, well, he is right. 
And unity can only be achieved in his own estimation if everyone goes along with what he wants to do. We actually read about a man like that in in 3 John and verse 9. His name is Diotrephes. And John says there, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. And that is it. Eh? That is vainglory. Diotrephes wanted to be the chief in charge. He, he wanted to be the one in the spotlight there at the church. And Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 6 and verse 3, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And that is exactly what vainglory is. It causes you to lie to yourself about who you really are. Now, every believer should always be on the lookout for strife and vainglory in their own lives and hearts. Because, folks, it is an enemy of unity. But you, see, but you can see how both strife and vainglory are actually nothing else than the fruit of selfish pride. And that stands in contrast to the last half of verse 3, where he says, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And that's a beautiful way to express humility. Let each esteem other as better than themselves. Now let's turn to 1 Peter and chapter 5. Of course, keep your place here. 1 Peter chapter 5. <laughs> yes, others. First uh, Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. And that is actually your attendance code for tonight. Now, um, I know we still have 10 minutes left of the hour. But if you would forgive me for this, because we had some technical difficulties, I, I think I would still go on for an hour. So if you had something planned for 7 o'clock, I guess that's okay. Um, uh, maybe you can just catch up later on. This video will be on YouTube. Um, but yeah, First Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And we will actually see a little bit later in Philippians chapter 2 uh, that that's actually what Jesus did. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this. Your attendance code is First Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Now, there you have three times in two verses where Peter calls believers to be humble. He says that we should be clothed with humility, you know, so you need to put it on like you put your clothes on. And it's, of course, not a, not a fake sort of humility. You know, the Bible never tells us to be fake. Uh, but this is the sort of humility that requires you to esteem others as better than yourself. Once again, this is not something that you should pretend, you know, that, that others are somehow more important to you. Or, or, or whatever. It's, it's not something you can fake. But to esteem them as better than yourself means to think it through and to actually believe it. Alright, verse 4. Verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. 
And we are living in a time where the, where the biblical principles of humility and selflessness are looked down on by, by the world. You know, pride in what you are and who you are seem to take center stage these days. And if anyone does not agree with you, well, then you can free, feel free to insult them or at the very least turn your back on them. If you don't believe me, just uh, and you'd like to see a quick example of that, just go to your favorite social media platform. I'll let you choose. I'll be blindfolded throughout this exercise. But just go and look what is posted there. Folks, if, if social media is a true reflection of what is going on in society, it would seem as if people are generally angry, they are proud, and they are arrogant. And I'm sure there are more words to describe it, which I just don't have in my vocabulary. But it would be foolish to think that that would not somehow seep into the church. That is what's going on in people's hearts. Now, the kind of arguments that happen in churches are, of course, of a different nature than those that you will find on social media. Perhaps you have heard about some churches where this has happened, but, but many disagreements and divisions within churches actually concern things that may be equally biblical or equally valid. A typical example of this is when ministry leaders start to promote their own ministry or their own program at the expense of others. So you see, some may think that the poor ministry, for instance, is more important than a prayer meeting. And others think that witnessing on the streets is more important than, well, Bible school. And this may cause all sorts of arguments to occur uh, between believers. And in the end, this division in the church has a negative influence on the entire church. And it happens because the best interests of the Lord and other believers are ignored. Now, perhaps you've noticed, but people get angry when others don't share the same view of, about things as they do. Or if things aren't done in church the way that they, sh they think it should be done. Now, of course, we can d discuss things uh, um, and change things around. And we can actually still disagree amongst ourselves. That is okay uh, um, about some things, you know, that are not necessarily an issue of biblical truth. You know, but there is no consideration and love for each other if we immediately get angry at each other simply because there is a disagreement. We would do well to look on the things of others as well, to see how we can accommodate each other and keep on marching in the same direction. It requires each person to humble himself and to esteem others as better than himself. And so Paul is going to give us the, the supreme example of humility here, which is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we are talking about the time when Jesus was manifest in the flesh. But the incarnation of Christ is, without a doubt, the biggest miracle that God has done. And Paul is going to give us three wonderful verses that explain to us how Jesus humbled himself in the incarnation. And, uh, <clears throat> sorry, but even though it is an amazing part of Scripture that we have here that gives us some insight into this wonderful event, we should not lose sight of why Paul is discussing it. All right, and that purpose is here in verse 5. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
So he has been exhorting the Philippians, the Philippians to be to humble themselves and to esteem others as better than themselves. And now he points his readers towards Jesus to see how humility works. And he tells them to think the same way as Jesus did. So look at verse 6. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now let's break these verses down. Let's start in verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So Paul starts off by affirming that Jesus is God. And he has always been God. He has no beginning and he has no end. He has existed as God even before his incarnation. He has existed as God during his incarnation and even after the incarnation. So to be clear, he has never started to be God and he will never stop being God. <laughs> Some people think that Jesus became God you know, at the point when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And some think that he started to, uh, being God when he was born. And then there are others that make an argument that, well, somewhere in his childhood he became God. Or when he was a young adult. And I think the argument that I've at least heard the most is that some people say that Jesus became God when John saw the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. But folks, that is simply not true. When you, when you go look at the Greek for the word that is used here for, for being, you know, being in the form of God, it is talking about the very essence of a person's nature. And when you look at the Greek word used here for form, okay, being in the form of God, it is talking about the essential, unchanging character or the, or the shape of something. And so it is clear that Paul is saying here that Jesus has always been God since before time began. And he is totally equal with God the Father in every way. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. It's just the next book over. And verse 15. Now, in this context, Paul, Paul is talking about Jesus, of course. And he says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So if you want a full explanation of the, that verse, just please refer back to the Colossians class that Brother Mike presented earlier this year. But Paul is saying that Jesus is the part of God that we can see. And he goes further there in verse 16 by saying that Jesus created everything. Verse 16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrown they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. <laughs> He's very clear about that. L Jesus literally created everything. So when we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God created the heavens and the earth, we are reading about the works of Jesus. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Ha, we're still online. That's fantastic. <laughs> All right, John chapter 1. In verse 1. 
John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Alright, so who is this Word? Look at verse 14. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Turn to chapter 8 for a moment. John chapter 8. And verse 58. John eight fifty-eight. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was... I am. <laughs> so Jesus lived even before Abraham lived. And he, he uses the same description as God used when he spoke to Moses, um, you know, um, uh, from the burning bush. Uh, God told him, I am that I am. Well, there you have it. Before Abraham was, I am. That is awesome. Now we can continue looking at different verses about this, but I think you get the point. Jesus has always been God. Now, Paul continues by saying that Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So, you see, even though Jesus had all the rights and all the honors and all the privileges of being God, his attitude was that he was not going to hold on to those things or, or to his position as God. But he, he willingly gave it up for a little while. He never used his power or his authority to give him any sort of personal advantage uh, when he came down in the flesh. So th think about this. For him, that is Jesus, that is God, <laughs> for God to change in any way uh, was already humiliating because he's already the best. You can only go down from, from him. Whatever the change would be, it would require him to step down. And that is exactly what he did. He became as one of his own creations. Now, how do you understand that? <laughs> the infinite, sinless creator became like one of his own finite, sinful creations. Now, of course, he was without sin. Um, but, but he went further after that by becoming sin for us, as 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 tells us. Now, Paul is using this to illustrate the attitude that every believer in Christ should have. They should be willing to give up their blessings, their, their positions, and their, their privileges in order to be a blessing to others. And we're back in Philippians 2 and verse 7. But made himself of no reputation and took, a, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now you know Jesus' twelve disciples and the rest of the um, and the rest of the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come as a as a conquering king. They expected someone that looked at least looked the part of a king, you know, someone that was greatly honored among men. <clears throat> but that was not the way that God planned it. Instead, he was born into a very humble family, in in the humblest of places. Now, when a new prince is born, you normally hear about it all over the news and the social media and so on. But not when Jesus was born. 
Now, sure, the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field. You know, they were the lowliest of the people. And, and, but the angels informed them that Jesus was born. But besides them, nobody really knew about him, you know, about his birth. And nobody really knew about him while he grew up because he was just another boy growing up in an average family. And then when he chose his disciples, he didn't go to the top Hebrew school of the day and pick the best and brightest. He picked a few men with little to no education, a few fishermen and so on. You know, Jesus was humiliated and reviled by his enemies. Yet like a lamb brought to the slaughter, he, ref he refused to open his mouth and defend himself. <clears throat> he humbled himself and, like Paul says, he made himself of no reputation. Now next Paul says uh, that he took upon him the form of a servant. Now once again this form speaks about the very nature of a servant. So, just as he existed in the form of God, he now existed in the form of a servant. He did not just look like a servant, he became one in essence. <clears throat> now, notice that nobody forced him to take on this form of a servant, but, but he rather took it upon himself. It was totally voluntary. We read in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 that he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And just like a servant should, he submitted to the will of the Father. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 30, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Now lastly, Paul says that, but Jesus was made in the likeness of men. So Jesus took on all of the essential attributes of humanity. Now sure, he was miraculously conceived, but, but then he was born of a woman, just like you and I are. It's not like he was God disguised as a man. <laughs> he was fully man, yet fully God. He was the God-man. If you were to look at him, you would not see anything that would make you suspect that he was God in the flesh. I mean, when he was a child, he, he needed the attention and care that any other child needs. He had to physically develop, you know, and, and he had to gr grow up like any other child. He got tired. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He could feel pain. He could feel sadness. He needed the help of others. That's a new one. You know, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4 and verse 15 that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And because he was in the likeness of sinful flesh, as Paul puts it in Romans 8 and verse 3, he ultimately had to die. But folks, that is why he came, and you know that, to die in our place so that we could be redeemed. Look at verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So, you know, the fact that the Jews rejected Jesus as God and even wanted to stone him because of his claims to be equal with God uh, is a great indication of what they saw when he was standing in front of them. They simply saw another man. He didn't walk around with some sort of glow about him, you know, like you see in many pictures. 
But you know, even though Jesus was doing all sorts of miracles right before the eyes of those Jews, most of them still didn't believe. Few of them actually had the sense that Nicodemus had to say, well, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. <clears throat> but except for becoming a man, Jesus humbled himself even further. As I said before, Jesus never even demanded to be treated decently, even though he had every right to be treated with the utmost respect and honor. In John 1 and verse 11, John says that he came unto his own and his own received him not. Instead, they mistreated him and he subjected himself to their mistreatment and to suffering at the hands of those unbelievers. But he didn't stop there. He humbled himself even more, as Paul says here in verse 8, and became obedient unto death. Jesus was willing to humble himself even unto dying as a criminal. Now, of course, you know that he wasn't a criminal, but, but he was treated like one. Now, if I heard this for the first time, I would have thought that Jesus would put a stop to all of this at some point, <laughs> you know, especially before dying like a criminal. But he demonstrated perfect obedience to the will of the Father. You know, even the night before he would be crucified, he prayed, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That's Matthew 26 and verse 39. You know, Jesus perfectly submitted his own will to the will of the Father. And it was the Father's will that he should drink of that cup. And so he did just that. It's like Romans uh, 5 and verse 6 says, In due time Christ died for the ungodly. It happened at the uh, perfect time. Now it's important to note here that the father never forced death on, the, on his son. It was the father's will that he should die, sure. But it was Jesus' will to always perfectly obey the father. If he never had a choice in the matter, it wouldn't have been called obedience, would it? <laughs> and Jesus confirms this in John 10, verse 17 to 18, where he says this. I'll just read it for you. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received. Of my father. But now you see, Jesus humbled himself even further than just dying as a criminal. He humbled himself by dying on a cross. Now, why is this a, an important distinction to make? Well, you see, there were many different ways in which Jesus could actually have been executed. I mean, he could have been beheaded like John the Baptist was, or he could have been hanged or stoned to death or whatever. But instead, he was crucified. You see, Crucifixion is perhaps the most cruel, painful, and shameful way to die. That was what it was designed to be by the Persians and who initially developed it. And then later on it was picked up by the Romans and they perfected it. You know, this type of execution was reserved for the lowest of criminals, the, the slaves and the enemies of the state. And it was so bad that there was a law that no Roman citizen could be crucified, no matter how terrible his crime was. The Jews considered crucifixion as a type of hanging, 
And the law actually says in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 31 that he that is hanged is accursed of God. So a crucified Messiah, therefore, became a huge stumbling block to them. Because how can the Messiah be cursed by God? It doesn't make sense to them. And that's why Isaiah says in his prophecy in Isaiah 53 and verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him, him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But that was part of God's perfect plan, you know, that the Messiah would become a curse for believers in order to redeem them from the curse of the law and to bring them to God. And that's what Galatians 3 and verse 13 tells us. You know, Jesus humbled himself to the lowest point possible, even to death on a cross. But now, from that lowest point possible, Jesus got exalted to the highest position of all. Look at verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. I think that we can distinguish between four different parts of Jesus' exaltation. You know, first... He was resurrected on the third day after he died on the cross. So this first part is so important that without it, there is no gospel and there is no Christianity. And Paul gives an excellent explanation of why the resurrection is so important and, and what the consequences are for us um, as believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But we won't go into that as part of this lesson. But I would definitely encourage you to please go and look at that. 1 Corinthians 15. And for 40 days after Jesus' uh, Jesus's resurrection from the dead, he taught the remaining 11 disciples many things about the kingdom of God. He then reminded them about the promise of the Holy Spirit that would come. Uh, and, and we read in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9 uh, the following. I'll just read it for you again. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, this ascension into heaven is therefore the second part of his exaltation. The third part is that when he got to heaven, he was seated on God's right hand, which is, of course, the position of power. And you can read about that in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22. And Stephen also testified to seeing Jesus there standing at the right hand of God right before he was stoned to death in Acts 7 and verse 56. And lastly, the fourth part of Jesus' exaltation is that he became our high priest that constantly intercedes for us before the Father. And you can go read about that in Hebrews 7, verse 25 to 27. I won't page there now just for the sake of time. Jesus said in Luke 14 and verse 11, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And he perfectly illustrated that by what he has done. He humbled himself more than anyone has. And then he, he was exalted above all. Verse 10. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. So Jesus was exalted so far above everyone that in the end every single knee will bow to Jesus whether they do it willingly or unwillingly. You know, everyone that is currently in heaven have been worshipping Jesus for a long time already. So they have willingly bowed the knee to him. 
and they will continue to do so. Then we have the group that, or the people that are down here on earth, and this group is actually a mix. We have those that are saved and those that are not saved. You know, and that's the only group mentioned here where you find this divide between willing people and uh, bowing the knee to Jesus and those that are not willing to do it, but will do it anyway. <laughs> you know, those that are saved have, of course, already bowed the knee to Jesus, and we continue worshipping Him, and we will do so forever. And lastly, we have the group that are under the earth, and those are, of course, the lost souls and all of the fallen angels that are, that are waiting there for their final judgment. But everyone, everywhere, will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And verse 11, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. You see that there. He is Lord. Now, notice, you don't make Him your Lord. He is Lord of all. Now, whether you trust in Him as your Savior, well, that's a different thing. But, folks, we need um, to get the way that we explain this to people right. Because, well, it turns out words actually do matter. And saying that you need to make Jesus your, your Lord is actually a little misleading. Even though I may know what you actually mean by that when you say it. But your audience might not. So, for somebody to get saved, they have to submit to Jesus as Lord. He is already in that position. It's not the sinner that makes him Lord. Alright? You remember Romans chapter 10 and verse 9? It says there that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, okay, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So you need to confess that Jesus is Lord. And that only comes after a person has submitted to him as Lord in his heart. But in the end, every tongue will confess that he is Lord and it will glorify God, whether they do it willingly or unwillingly. Now, remember why Paul is telling us this to begin with. It all started um, uh, when he was talking about unity within the church, there at the beginning of this chapter. And the point here is that unity in the church can only come when there is a general attitude of humility among the members of the church, where each one esteems the other as more important than himself. And Jesus perfectly demonstrated the, this attitude of humility during his incarnation. Let's go to verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now this is of course one of those verses that people read and then they get a minor panic attack about it because Paul says to work out your own salvation. So what, does that then mean that we should do good works in order to be saved? Well, no, of course not. Otherwise it would actually overthrow much of what we read about in the New Testament. Paul is saying to work out your own salvation, not work towards your own salvation. There's a world of difference there. Now, I get why people think that Paul is saying that we should be working towards our salvation, because that is just our sinful predisposition. You know, mankind thinks that he is able to work for his salvation, but we know from the Bible that that is impossible. Well, we know it from experience, that it's impossible. 
Instead, what Paul is saying here is that we should work out our salvation. We should work it out to completion. He's talking about sanctification. A believer should be living a life that is consistent with the gift of salvation. Now, Paul starts off by commending the Philippians that they always were obedient to the Lord while he was still with them. But now, while he is far away from them, they, they should continue to be obedient. And this ties in with what we read in, in chapter 1 and verse 27, where he said, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. So you see, every believer is responsible to obey the Lord by themselves. They should not be dependent primarily on a pastor or a church or anyone else to motivate them to be obedient to the Lord and therefore to grow in their faith. They should be able to do it by themselves. So Paul is saying, keep on obeying the Lord, even though I'm not there to see it. <laughs> and in doing so, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So to work something out means to put in constant energy in order to complete a task of some sort. In this case, Paul is telling them to, to press onward and to continue being obedient, despite doing, going through all sorts of difficulties and persecutions, just like Jesus did. You see, Jesus was the prime example of this. <laughs> In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul said there that, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that is what sanctification is. It is actively putting energy in to growing in the faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. It should be an ongoing project in believers' lives, and, and we should be serious about it. And so he says we should do it with fear and trembling. Now, this is not the type of fear that causes you to be afraid, you know, if, I, if I, I'm not uh, being sanctified or, or if I fail or whatever, that I will receive eternal punishment in hell. It's not that type of fear. But it, it's rather a, a reverential type of fear. It is, it is the type of fear that causes you to want to please God and to glorify His name and to not sin against Him. So verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So this is another one of those verses that some people read and they think, okay, so God is making you willing. <laughs> so he somehow overrides your free will and turns you into a robot so that you can do his will. <laughs> but that can't be farther, further from the truth here. You know, God is so smart and powerful that he is able to help you be willing without taking your free will away from you. I'd like to share an illustration about this that I heard from Brother Mike uh, that I think is useful in understanding how this works. Now, many of you um, listening have probably experienced this before, but you know that God can work in your heart in a church service, right? Sometimes it just seems as if the, the preacher is preaching directly at you, you know, and you start to think to yourself, well, man, I, I want to stop this or that sin or that I've been doing, or I didn't even realize I was sinning, or I would like to start serving the Lord better in this way or that way or whatever, or whatever else it may be. So God worked in you to be willing. 
He gave the preacher a sermon that touched your heart. But in the end, you are the one making the choice and then doing something about it, right? So he worked in you to create that will inside of you, sure. But you make the choice to do something that gives him pleasure. And whether that is to give up some sin or to start serving him more earnestly, whatever it may be. You see, God is not interested in creating a bunch of robots for himself. Instead, he is interested in your heart. He wants you to obey him, but he also wants you to be willing when you do it. <laughs> so then, if you look at both, uh, both verses 12 and 13, we see that the process of sanctification involves the effort from the believer's side, and then also the work that God does in the heart of a believer. Now, um, let me just see here where the time is. Mm. All right, let, let's just, I think let's stop here for tonight. Uh, I was hoping to get a little bit further, but with all the technical difficulties, well, that's how it goes. So we'll continue in verse 14 next time. Um, I'm just checking here. All right. We're still online. I was <laughs> I was just wondering if I taught this complete lesson and then uh, we're offline. Let, let's bow our heads and, and we can just pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you that you've come down and um, that you that you were manifest in the flesh. Lord, that you that you willingly died in our behalf to pay for our sins. Oh, Lord, thank you that you rose again from the dead. Thank you that we can know we are not uh, worshipping and serving some dead guy that lived a few thousand years ago. Oh, Lord, you are the one true living God, and we praise you so much that you have revealed yourself to us. And we ask that you will please help us, Lord, to, um, or, or, or that you would keep on working in our hearts, that we may become more or, or may be conformed more and more into the image uh, of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, um, we want to reach others with the gospel. And so I just want to pray that you will please help us, give us the opportunities, Lord, and um, work in our hearts that we may be willing to serve you in that capacity and in other capacities. Lord, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for being with us tonight. Lord, thank you that we could figure out this uh, uh, live stream issue tonight. And uh, Lord, will you please keep on working in us and, and um, never stop. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. And uh, next time we will continue from verse 14. And I hope you have a good night.